What is going on, Farewell listeners? Welcome back to another episode of Farewell. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. Today we are talking about happiness. Why happiness? Well, it's an important component of health and well-being, and we obviously care about health and well-being at the Growth Equation. But also, happiness just seems to be really in the zeitgeist, and has been for a while. As a country, we seem perhaps more obsessed with happiness than we've ever been. And this country was founded, remember, on the pursuit of happiness. There's so much happiness content out there. Books, articles, college courses, people who are going on speaking tours all about happiness. And one of the reasons the market for happiness is so big is because we seem to be profoundly unhappy. And that is something of a weird paradox. We live at a time when humans have achieved a level of development and technology and comfort that allows a large swath of population the time and attention to give to trying to be happy. And we have more people than ever telling us how to be happy. And yet we don't seem to be very happy. That suggests that some of our notions about what happiness is and how to get it are maybe faulty. And it might even suggest that all this thinking about happiness is contributing to our unhappiness. So today's discussion dives into all that. I think it hits both the philosophical side and the concrete, actionable side. It will give you different ways of thinking about happiness, different theories of happiness, but then also various ways to think about approaching happiness in your own life in the short and long term. We'll start with Brad, our philosopher king, taking us back to ancient Greece. So way back in the day, ancient Greece, Aristotle wrote pretty comprehensively about happiness. He called it the highest good, the ultimate end. And since then, it's been a primary goal for just about everyone. But in Aristotle's pages and pages of writing, he never really defined happiness. And I think that's where we have to start, is what does happiness mean? In in the academic literature, there's been a debate over the last couple of decades. And there are essentially these two camps. The first takes a route that is called eudaimonic happiness, which essentially says that happiness is about self-realization, finding meaning, satisfaction, texture, having a meaningful life. And that is happiness, even if it includes pain and suffering. Another camp is arguing for something called hedonic happiness, which is the attainment of pleasurable in-the-moment feelings in the avoidance of pain. Now, what another researcher might say, and many have, is that there's kind of a false dichotomy because you can have something be meaningful and pleasurable at the same time. And how do you even broadly define pleasure? But I think that you have to make a cut somewhere. And it seems like these two cuts are between this feels great in the moment versus I find this to be meaningful. And that also gets into the difference between our experiencing self and our remembering self. Because our experiencing self in the moment might love heroin. But our remembering self, looking back on that, might be really frustrated that we've fallen into a cycle of addiction. And that is the number one quip with hedonic happiness as a definition is that hedonic happiness often leads to a life of degeneracy. Like if you just pursue pleasure in the avoidance of pain, you might be happy in the moment, but your life would not look quote unquote happy. 
So I personally, when I think about happiness, one, I think it's the wrong goal altogether. Maybe we'll get to that later. But two, I think that genuine happiness is more of the eudaimonic variety, the variety that is associated with finding meaning in life and less so acute pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Not that there's anything wrong with pleasure. I think I'm in agreement with Brad. Um, I'd add another wrinkle probably from taking a look at this from a, a different perspective, but I loved, believe it was psychologist Jack Bauer, who not the 24 TV star, but psychologist um, who took that idea of hedonic and eudaimonic and kind of broke it down into words that we understand. And he called the hedonic as like the essentially like happiness in the here and now. And then eudaimonic, he gave like different levels. And I believe his levels were meaning, meaningfulness, wisdom, and then some later researchers added on a, another layer, which they called psychological richness. And that last one is like doing things that add perspective, like varied interests, perspective changing experiences on top of it. And I like this kind of combination because if we just break it down to happiness, meaning wisdom, what we're getting at, and I think what, what has been found in the field of positive psychology is instead of calling it happiness, it's more like living a good life is what we mean by it. And if we add those things all together and yeah, we'll have a little of that like short-term happiness as well as part of a good life. That's what we're kind of after in, in to step back a little bit and why I think it's important to kind of wrestle with this definition is I think part of the problem is that happiness is such a messy psychological construct. And it's so like individual of like what that means to me or even how I evaluate that in the moment. We really don't know what we're doing or what we're aiming for. And I think what the best thing that kind of gets at this is if you actually look at research and survey data of like how happiness changes over time from like when you're young to old. And it essentially follows like a, uh, a U shape up until 18, 19, 20, like we're pretty happy. And then it just goes down, down, down until you're at the kind of period that, that us are at where we're in our thirties and we're reaching the nadir of happiness and then somewhere, if I remember correctly, in your 40s or 50, it starts going up, up and up. And I would argue, well, why does that kind of occur? Well, if you look at those ingredients, like early on, life's pretty simple. So maybe going towards that kind of like, I feel good and I'm going to enjoy life contributes to our happiness. But as we age and get this middle middle age and we go through our middle age crises and what are they? Crises of meaning. We interpret that as like, oh, I'm not that happy anymore. But then as we age and we realize, hey, I got some wisdom. I'm doing all right. Still live. I'm hanging out with friends more. I know what I like and don't like. Our quote unquote happiness goes up. And I think that's that's how it kind of fits in this jumble is it's these jumble of things that we throw into happiness when we really mean like kind of living a, a decent, good, fulfilling life. 
Yeah, I think another problem is that we think of happiness as a destination often, as a place you can arrive at when really it's more of like a constellation of conditions in some way. That's right. I'm going to read my favorite quote ever on happiness. I know that I've probably said this to both of you offline many times, but for the listeners, in his book, Lila, which he wrote in 1991, Robert Persig has this section where he is just riffing on the traps of celebrity and chasing consumerism and ideals for happiness. And he writes, the pursuit of happiness seemed to have become like the pursuit of some scientifically created mechanical rabbit that moves ahead at whatever speed it is pursued. If you ever did catch it for a few moments, it had a peculiar synthetic technological taste that made the whole pursuit seem senseless. And I cannot help but think that he is describing what today we would call is like going viral on the internet or like going on a sh- an online shopping bender, all these things that like we think are going to make us happy. And we keep chasing these things and we never catch them. And even if we do, it's not what we thought it would be. We don't feel so good. It, it, I love how he calls it synthetic. And to me, that is like the hedonic to the umph degree happiness. It's like eating a Cheeto, but in happiness terms. That is just engineered to feel so great on that first bite. And man, you think it's going to fill you up, but it's just a bunch of chemicals that are there to hardwire your brain. And it doesn't tap into that deeper need for meaning that we have. I, I think I think an interesting w- path into this is also is just looking at at the biology of all this stuff, where we we kind of look at okay, uh, do happy uh, by happiness do we mean like the momentary pleasure that we feel from you know experiencing something? Do we mean like that dopamine hit of you know chasing something, or do we mean that deep kind of satisfaction you get? of pursuing something meaningful in your life. And I think we kind of lump all of it together. And sometimes we chase one versus the other. And I think that's why, you know, generally, if we look at and study happiness, we use like surveys and ask people how they feel and what they think and blah, blah, blah. And I would argue that, yeah, that has some value as we've talked about, but it also misrepresents things because, you know, I don't know, Brad Clay, if I asked, 16 year old you what would you say like brings hat would have would have brought happiness to you playing sports right same yeah yeah <laughs> yeah right. yeah a snow a snow day at high school where we recklessly drove because we shouldn't have been on the roads to the local gym and just played pickup basketball from nine to nine so, that was happiness so, right so what is it what is it now brad what is happiness to me now yeah having put in a good day's creative work of deep focus and attention and sitting on the couch with my family or friends after that good day. So more satisfaction um, after what I perceive to be meaningful effort. Right. And and so my point is there, if like we surveyed like eight out of 10 or whatever it, you know, to 15, 16 year old Brad is a different, like, end result or activity or thing behind it than an eight out of 10 for, you know, 30 something year old Brad. And I think this is, again, what makes it really tricky 
but it also makes it interesting. I also think another thing to point out is we, and I'd be curious to get your guys' take on this, but it just feels to me like we are not evolutionarily wired for happiness. I mean, it's only a thing we've been able to consider, like in when you look at the timeline of mankind for the smallest, smallest fraction of a second at the end of that timeline. And so our our brain is just not wired for to be in a happy state all the time. We are wired to scan for threats and danger. And that is why I think it's come so unnaturally to us. Yeah, I'll let Steve go deeper into the science, but in very layperson's terms, the satisfied, blissed out apes all died because when there was a famine, they didn't have food stockpiled. So um, those of us that are left from our ancestors came from neurotic ancestors that were workaholics and addicted to striving, and that's why we're here. I don't think the science can top that analogy or that 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 metaphor there. I mean, it it's spot on, though. I mean, we're driven to strive. It's in our biology. You look at the hormones, the drivers, the dopamines, like... We are driven to strive not to be content because like the person being content isn't going to go get that next meal. The person like being content and blissed out isn't looking for the threat on the horizon. Like we, I mean, it's, it's why we have an evolutionary mismatch between, you know, um, for example, the news and the car crash effect and seeing all the bad stuff. It's why, you know, certain friends or relatives think that, you know, their middle-class neighborhood is like the worst place in the world to live because they see threats everywhere because our brain is, is wired to be attuned to that. And one of the things that we know about our brain is it's predictive. So if it's always thinking like, Hey, the world is dangerous. I got to look out for this. Then we're not going to be sitting there like, Hey, I'm happy. I'm content. Because it's like doing its job. I think one of the problems that we have is this idea that it is something, that happiness is something to be pursued. And it's built right in again to the founding words of the country, right? the pursuit of happiness. But I think part of the problem is that pursuit, that drive keeps us constantly propelled forward and keeps us looking for the next thing when I think what we might be better served by is learning how to be content or satisfied. And that's like a feeling of enoughness, right? And it doesn't, it's not predicated on more. Um, and I think, th- I think that's kind of the problem. Like, can you be content with what you have? And I feel like if you're ambitious or striving, it's almost antithetical to that sort of contentment or satisfaction that can stick around. Whereas happiness is elusive and you have to constantly keep chasing it if it's built on this promise of more. I think that that gets back to something that you said earlier, Clay, which is that it's not a place or a destination to arrive at. It is something that you have to create along the way. I'm going to go back to Robert Persig. He's been a huge philosophical influence for me on this sort of thing. And he wrote in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance that there's no Zen on mountaintops. The only Zen is the Zen that you bring up there. Like all the Zen is in the valley and on the climb. And um, yeah, I think that's it. I think that if you think that you're going to arrive somewhere, it, it you don't get it. Yeah, you're going to go Robert Persig. I'm going to go throw out a quote by um, 
Adam Smith, the uh, basically the founder of capitalism. Here you would be like, why in the world are you going to talk about the guy who told us to go get wealth and get rich? But if you actually read Adam Smith, he has some great quotes and understanding of like both the advantage of kind of pursuing wealth and the things we should look out for. And he actually talked about happiness. He said, and I'll quote, happiness consists in tranquility and enjoyment. Without tranquility, there can be no enjoyment. And where there is perfect tranquility, there is scarce anything which is not capable of amusing. And I think, again, he gets at this kind of balance that we just talked about, which is that that pursuit and contentment. I would argue, you know, Smith would argue, you need to have both in some sort of degree and some sort of harmony, which I think is also what Persig was getting at. To me, it's almost like a, happiness is almost like a weather system. Like it's like a rainbow or a thunderstorm. Like there are certain conditions that create the environment that allow happiness to arrive. But to wake up every day and try to conjure it up, which is, as I think, a lot of what we do in the modern world, at least people who are privileged enough to be able to talk about and think about happiness, they wake up and they're like, I'm going to be happy today. But most days aren't thunderstorms and most days aren't rainbows. And it's like you just if you do certain things like meaningful work and have meaningful relationships and things in your life that give you purpose, then maybe happiness can sort of coalesce like a constellation of factors and emergent property. But I think maybe that's our issue is we wake up every day being like, today's the day I'm going to be happy. And it's like, well, you, you can have some influence on it and some control over it, but it's it's pretty elusive and pretty nebulous. And to think you can just conjure it up, I think is where a lot of people maybe go wrong. I love this metaphor. You've got your book if you want to write this one, Clay, because... <laughs> I, I think that like you follow this all the way to the end in the goal. No one is like, oh, the goal is like to, you know, chase perfect weather because you can't control the weather. The goal is actually to prepare yourself for all kinds of weather. And when the weather is beautiful and the conditions are right for a beautiful rainbow, enjoy it, savor it, really be there for it. And when there's a thunderstorm, Try not to complain that there's not a rainbow, but get your freaking rain jacket on and get out your umbrella and try to get cozy in the house as best you can. And I think that if you looked at all these motions like weather, then the goal isn't to grab hold of the weather and never let it go because that's impossible. The goal is to enjoy the good weather and do what you can to get through the bad weather and realize that it's all cyclical. And if you thought that every time there was a thunderstorm, something was terribly wrong with you, you would be that much more miserable on a rainy day. But no one thinks that because we realize that thunderstorms are just part of weather. And yet with our emotions, we don't do that. And I think that another real insidious consequence of this obsession with happiness is it makes sadness and boredom and apathy and all the other emotions even worse because not only do we then experience those negative emotions, but we judge ourselves or we think something's wrong with us because we're not happy all the time. To me, chasing happiness is a little like chasing flow where you're just like, oh, this state feels great. Like this is the, you know, according to some, like the most magical, wonderful place or state to be, but it's just a state. And if you go into every race and you say, oh, I, I'm, I got to get into flow. Well, guess what? You're only going to get into flow maybe like 5 to 10% of the competitions or races. So are you going to be miserable and 
perform poorly 90% of the time? No, you just got to figure out how to perform because that's the task that you're choosing to go on or the journey you're choosing to go on. You got to figure out how to perform no matter what's thrown at you. And true wisdom teachers know this. You know, the best meditation teachers, very similar to chasing flow in sport, you'll be at a retreat or something and you'll you'll finally achieve that state of just total oneness with the universe and your ego dissipates and you just settle into like pure awareness and being. And then you go report that out to a really good teacher, Tara Brock, Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein. What are they going to do? They're like, oh, okay. And you're going to be like, oh my God, like this is it, Nirvana. And they're like, tell me about the sip before that. And you're like, well, the sip before that, like my mind was racing and it was terrible. And they're like, oh, okay. And the point is like, it's just a state. And if you get attached to that state and if you chase that state, that's not like, you're going to be miserable. You're missing the point. And I think that's the key there is like, we know from meditation, if you try and chase that experience, what did Brad just say? You're never going to have it again because chasing gets in the way. If I try and force my way into flow because I said, Hey, this is great. Like this race didn't hurt. I ran wonderful. I ran a PR and I felt no pain because I was in flow. If I try and chase that state and I've had athletes do it, they're never going to get in it again. They're never going to be able to perform. And I think it's kind of a nice analogy to happiness because like if we chase that chasing gets in the way, it creates tension. It creates that, that want and that angst around like getting in that place. And that is counter to actually kind of experience that balance of maybe enjoyment and contentment that we're after. So I want to, I want to make sure that before we end, we talk about the value of acute pleasure and how dangerous it can be at the same time and how not to become a Puritan on any of this stuff, because I don't think that that is wise either. So the example that I'm going to use is um, just this past weekend, my son was at a birthday party for one of his best friends who lives in the neighborhood, but his friend is two years older than him and goes to a different school. So he did not know anyone at the party And he was by far the youngest kid. And the difference between like six and eight or nine is quite a bit physically developed. And it was a dance party. And these kids were out there dancing and doing all this stuff. And Theo, my son, was just not into this party. Like he was overwhelmed. He wasn't feeling great. He was kind of sad. And I can tell he felt like kind of isolated and lonely and left out. And I stayed there with him because these are, like I said, this is like his best friend in the neighborhood. I love this kid. I want to be there for the party too. And he's just not, he's not happy, but we're just staying there. He's sitting on my lap. We're both kind of watching. We're talking. Didn't want to play musical chairs, was scared of all the big kids. And then there's this game where all you had to do is essentially like draw a raffle number. So he went and played the game and thank God he won the freaking raffle. So he gets this prize, this little treasure box of sand with gems in it, dollar at the dollar store. And he lights up. He is so stoked. He is so happy running around in circles. I won the prize. I won the prize. Dancing, starting to talk to these other kids just on cloud nine. And Carter, the birthday boy's dad, who's a good friend of mine, he looks at me and I'm like, wow, like that really turned Theo around. And my first thought, and I told Carter, I'm like, it's all of us. Like, what do we do when we're like a little bit down, isolated, feeling lonely? 
I go buy a flat brim hat. Clay buys a hoodie. Steve buys a pair of running shoes. We all did it during COVID. I just listened on Derek Thompson's podcast, Plain English, about the Stanley water bottle. That the reason that those Stanley water bottles became a trend is because everyone was bored during COVID. And it was literally, in this case, a bright and shiny object that people could buy, get a little dopamine hit. So we all do this, or at least most of us. And I think there's danger in being puritanical about it and saying, no, you should never go shopping when you're feeling down, or you should never order that Vuori t-shirt on a rainy day. However, the same thing could be said the opposite, which is that's a really dangerous pattern to get into because then you're chasing the dragon that you're never going to catch. And to be clear, I firmly believe that all of consumerism runs on our desire to feel good and be happy. I mean, all you have to do is watch television commercials and the commercial for dishwasher detergent, cat litter, uh, insurance, all the people are beautiful and smiling. What does that have to do with scooping my cat's litter? But they're not selling you the litter. They're selling you that you can be beautiful and smiling. So consumerism is built on this emptiness or this existential angst or this loneliness, the same feeling that my son had at that birthday party. And then it sells us a piece of shit sand with gems in it to make us happy for a short period of time. It leaves us wanting so we come back for more. Well, I think something there is like that seems to suggest to me, and it, it feels obvious to say, but maybe worth stating, is that emotional regulation is a far better goal than happiness. Like it's far better to get used to being with something that's uncomfortable than to chasing happiness. Cause it's just, you just can't, you can't buy Stanley cups all the time. You're going to have to sit with what makes you feel bad. I think it's knowing when you want to experience the thing and when you need to sit with it. It's also knowing when like, eh, whatever, like, this Detroit Lions hat is going to make me happy. So I'm just going to splurge on it. And that's okay to a degree. I think what Brad's getting at too, is if you said, no, I can never like buy anything that is kind of frivolous and like, I don't really need then uh, that creates a kind of unhealthy relationship with like happiness or that, that emotion that comes with it. And I think we need this like middle of the ground spot. And I think that's on us to kind of evaluate things. I spent some time with Arthur Brooks, who is a, uh, I believe he would refer to himself as a social scientist, but he he's on a he's on the journey to spread the gospel of happiness. What I found most interesting of his ideas is that he approaches happiness almost in the way that a addict would approach sobriety, which is he basically wakes up every day and thinks we are hard. Like my brain is wired in such a way that is going to lead me to things that make me unhappy. And I have to remind myself every day to go towards things that are going to make me happy. So he says there are four, I see you shaking your head, Brad, but he says there are four false idols, which are money, power, pleasure, and fame. And that those are the things we go towards. And what we should go towards are faith, family, friends, and meaningful work. And I think that's an interesting framing, but it is, to me, it's kind of pessimist to have to wake up every day and be like, in the same way an addict is like, I can't, I, I know I have to wage the war against alcoholism today. Today, we have to wage the war against unhappiness. That feels to me a little dark. But he's feeling his addiction. And I want to get Arthur on the podcast. And I think that he's such a uh, a thoughtful, like really lifelong intellectual. And, and I have nothing but respect for him. What I would love to ask him is, if that's the case, then why did you decide to write a pop book with Oprah? 
Because like, for he, might real. Ch- he might be chasing the false idols. Because, no, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like he's chasing the dragon. He would say he's addicted to working and addicted to success. And he would say that like most conventionally ambitious people who want to be successful just aren't wired to be to be happy. He told me he's like, I was like, it takes so much work for you to be happy. And he said, quote, yeah, I work my ass off because I'm naturally miserable. And I tell him, it seems like the conditions that make you want to strive for happiness are the things that are keeping you unhappy. And he's like, yes, that's the paradox. And so it just makes me think it's, I don't know, impossible for a lot of people. But I think I'm pretty happy and I'm pretty addicted to my work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think I, 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 I do. And I think it's, it, it is again, depends on how I define happiness. Does that mean I'm like blissed out on the couch all the time? No. Um, but I often feel pretty good with my life. Like I want to sell more books. I want more people to listen to this podcast. I'd always like to have a little bit more money, but I don't feel compelled for any of those things. None of those things are making decisions for me. I'm not pursuing those things despite negative consequences. Um, but I also haven't faked it. Part of the reason that I'm okay is because my wife knows how important like craft is to me. So she's not getting mad at me when I work really hard. The other part of this, and I'm going to come back to that Jack Bauer research. I remember one of his big things was under underlying kind of happiness, meaning wisdom is how we narrate it and kind of the themes and tones that go around with like how we make sense of and explain this journey on, on these different pursuits or different things we have. And I think what's often missed there is that, yeah, we have like some bio, like our biology is, you know, ingrained or genetic or whatever. And we're going to have some people who are more, you know, hyper reactive on X or like more likely to crave or be addicted on, on Y. But I also think there's like this wonderful ability to adapt and change. And I, I often wonder, you know, you hear, I don't know Arthur Brooks from anybody. I've read his books, but that's about it. But I often wonder on, on people like that and say like, like, is there a way you can change your story where you can say like, not a 180 where I'm not going to work ever. But I would argue, and Brad would have some good perspective on this. I would argue that like in my younger years in athletics, for sure. And then when I got into writing, for sure, like I was like work driven and could just like sit down and work all day if I needed to or wanted to and often like felt I had to. Um, But I would say now I'm more chill. I mean, there's still that like need to like, I still want to do the work. It's why I keep writing books and and do stuff, but I'm way more chill than I was. And I would for sure say, especially if we looked at work and running, like I was a way closer on the addict side. So I think there's like an ability to change and adapt. Um, And sometimes I think we just get too stuck instead of like rewriting or shifting our story a little bit. To really draw this home at the individual level for all of us and for listeners, there's this age-old philosophical thought experiment, and and I'll ask it to you, Clay. So if I could hook you up to a perpetual happiness machine where the rest of your life, you would just live in this tube all alone, 
but you would feel exactly as you feel eating a delicious piece of pizza or making love to a beautiful partner or whatever those feelings are. And that's it. You are just like locked into those feelings for the next 70 years. But you got to be in a tube the whole time and you're all alone. Would you take that? No, of course not. Right. You go out and you live your life in the world. But you, but your happiness, especially if we judge it on the hedonic kind of pleasure, would be by far higher in that too. Because yeah. going out and living your life, you're going to be miserable sometimes because you're a human. Yet... Just about everyone says, I don't want the, the perpetual happiness tube. Yet we go by books, the happiness equation, how to be happy, but none of us want the freaking happiness tube. So it's the wrong goal altogether. And I think like that is where I come out. Yeah. And I think that also is a mistaken idea of happiness. Cause to me, and I have made that mistake. I make that mistake a lot when, you know, maybe I have too many beers, but to me, that's like excitement. That's like reverse anxiety almost. You know, that it's that pleasure can be such a stimulated uh plate like sensation that it's almost discombobulating. Like that to me is not happiness as much as like satisfaction or contentment. And Steve, you asked Brad, like, what did happiness, what does happiness look like now? What did it look like back then? What does it look like now? And I said playing sports. And if you ask me what happiness looks like now, it looks a lot more like stillness. Like it looks a lot more like being still. Yeah. Tikna Han says there's a difference between excitement and ease, and we often mistake the two. And what yeah. I'm hearing you say is that today, now you'd prefer ease over excitement. Yeah. Yeah. But even if you could be in a perpetual stillness machine, I mean you could. You could yeah, go to you a monastery. You, you, you could seasons. go to a monastery and spend your whole life trying to be yeah. still. And some people do this and there's nothing to take away from them, but the minority of people do this. Most don't because you want the seasons. Yeah. It's adaptation. Yep. You gotta vary the stressors. If you don't, it all becomes the same. This was fun. I was I was happy, content during this conversation. I hope you guys were too. Um, yeah, let us know. Let us know if you think we uh, nailed the happiness conversation. If you have thoughts, different ideas, where we went wrong, where you agree, and we will be back with the coach up on Monday, and we will talk to you then. As always, farewell. Mm-hmm.